This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. I'm an executive coach and the author of Find Your Happy at Work. You know, many people believe that happiness at work requires a careful work-life balance. But that term, work-life balance, is off-putting because the relationship between your career and the rest of your life can be complicated and intense. Our guest today, Christina Wallace, has written a book about it. Her book is called The Portfolio Life, and her thesis is that we need a broader relationship with work, one that allows us to define ourselves more expansively than any single job description. Christina, who's now a senior lecturer at the Harvard Business School, she's forged a career that encompasses a variety of skills and activities. She'll share tips from her book and her own path about how you can create a portfolio life, one that not only brings more joy, but also reduces the risks of career building in today's frantic world. Christina, thanks so much for being here. Your book is right uh, in, in the middle of my sweet spot. I love trying to figure out work-life balance, and I hate the term. So thank you for being here. <laughs> Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, like I said, I'm excited about your book, and we're going to dig into your recommendations today. But first, I'm always interested in other people's career stories. But really, I, I thought that your career is sort of a model mm. of... Um, what you're talking about with the portfolio life. And it feels like you you kind of, in some ways, pull the uh, book not only out of your academic background, but out of your gut. So mm-hmm. I would really love it if you would give us the story of your career path. How did you get here? And, and uh, how did you go about the process of creating your own balance? Sure. I mean, I, I not so jokingly say I wrote this book to explain to my mother what I've been up to uh, <laughs> over my career. Um, no, so I I started out, uh, even as a very young child, I always had a ton of different interests. And I was never uh, uh, content to just pick one and focus. So uh, even when I was very young, I studied piano and cello and voice. I was on the math team. I ran student council. Um, I, I always had my feet in sort of multiple worlds and networks and disciplines. And when I got through college, you know, I double majored, I triple minored. I still wasn't interested in in focusing. And so I started my career, you know, I, I studied math and theater as my majors. And I, I started my career Career intending to be a Broadway theater director. Um, I had worked in professional theater all the way through college and moved to New York City to, to do directing, and I needed a day job. And so I got one at the Metropolitan Opera in management uh, on the arts uh, management side of the house. And I realized that a lot of what I loved about math and systems and optimization, I could apply 
in the running of an arts organization. And I thought, hey, that's really interesting. It's, an, it's one way to sort of mash up my loves of the arts and of math and, and organizing and leading. And so I went off to business school intending to get an MBA and, and study um, and go on to run a big arts organization. And when I got to Harvard, uh, the financial crisis happened, <laughs> and suddenly yes. there were no jobs in the nonprofit arts world. There were there were not a lot of jobs anywhere, and so um, our school really started emphasizing entrepreneurship. And up to that point, if you wanted to go into startups, you went to Stanford. If you wanted to go into sort of big company management, you went to Harvard. And Harvard really had this pivot at that point that that startups and technology would suddenly become a real focus for MBAs. And I discovered that a lot of what I liked about making theater, um, having a big idea, pulling together a team, creating something out of nothing, that was true in tech startups as well. Um, and so I, I made this shift into technology startups and, and focused really in entrepreneurship for a decade uh, in the New York tech scene. But while I was doing that, I never lost my connection to the arts. I was still singing. I was producing independent theater projects. And um, and then I got to this point in my career where my husband and I wanted a family, and I knew that the type of entrepreneur that I wanted to be and the type of mother I wanted to be didn't feel like I could do both at the same time. So there um, are I, some limits of combining. There are. And I, I thought at this point, I was like, I need to make a change. I need to rebalance my commitments in a way that allows me to be the mother to young children that I want. And then when they get a little older, when I have a little bit more space again, I can rebalance once again. And that's really what led me to joining the faculty at Harvard Business School, where I can teach entrepreneurship, I can advise and invest. I'm still very connected to that world. But it gives me autonomy and flexibility and just a little bit more space so that I can have young children, you know, my kids are one in three, they are a handful at this stage. And it's, it's what I need for this season of my life. Well, it feels like you really have lived a portfolio life. But <laughs> as time has gone on, you've been more conscious about shaping mm -hmm. um, and making choices mm -hmm. um, for your portfolio life. And I, I think that brings us to the to the book, you um, suggested that the maybe there there are three principles mm -hmm. that um, guide your portfolio life and and are I think a good starting point by for talking about what you really mean by this term. What what are those principles? Yeah, it starts with number one: you are more than any one role or job opportunity. Um, you are bigger than that, that what you do right now is not all that you are or can do. Number two, diversification is the only way to future-proof in a world that is changing this fast and having this many disruptions. And number three, design for the season of life you're in, and when that season changes, rebalance your portfolio. Well, I, I, I love that. And I've got to tell you, I... My first book from ages ago was called Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like mm. a CEO. And, <laughs> and my theory, having been in business and universities and government and being a lawyer and having an MBA and all of those things, mm -hmm. um, 
is is that the only security in a career is being an entrepreneur wherever you are. And you yes. can work for a big university or the federal government. But the I noticed by when I became a coach that the things that made entrepreneurs successful are exactly the things that made people working in the federal government or another complex organization succeed. So I I I I think that's part of um, taking some of the risk out of your career because you're Mm -hmm. always looking around. But it's also uh, something else, which is just having some um, a a mix of skill sets means that you always have something to fall back on. Is that part of the risk management that the it absolutely gives? I mean, I think you're touching on exactly this this you know, concept that I start the book with, which is just how much uh, has changed in how careers are built, how the world works now, sort of the economic equation that millennials and Gen Z are inheriting, and how different it looks from previous generations. You know, my mother thinks that being an entrepreneur is incredibly risky. You know, in, in when she was building her career, it was you pick a thing, and then you pledge your loyalty to a company and then yes. you do it for 40 years. And that felt not risky. And and I think that entire equation is flipped on its head where that seems the riskiest thing now because there is no loyalty between companies and their talent. It is a much more uh, transactional relationship than it ever was. And what that means is there's a ton of risk. If you pick a thing focus on that, specialize in that, build only your network in that space, and don't keep your eyes peeled for all of the other forces and and things that are happening around you. And so having that entrepreneurial mindset, as you point out, even if you're in a big company or even if you're in a public sector, where you are constantly thinking about uh, what can I build what problems can I solve? What yes. skills can I bring to the table or develop in order to meet those problems and solve them? And how can you have that kind of ownership mentality to your work? That is going to uh, diversify certainly your skill set and your network so that if that job disappears, <laughs> maybe through no fault of your own, you have so many other things you can not even fall back on, but just redirect toward so that you you aren't really left high and dry. Yeah. I, I, when I was young and really making my own way through the various career possibilities, I kept thinking, I'm, I'm a pretty risk-adverse person, so you wouldn't think you'd want to be entrepreneurial, but I kept thinking, I want to um, have so many possibilities that mm-hmm. if something happens and I'm dropped in the middle of some state or country where I don't know anybody, I can figure out how mm-hmm. to make a living starting that day. That was that was my goal when I was um, <laughs> a, a very risk adverse twenty something, and it's mm-hmm. it it can work out that way. But not that I was ever dropped in the middle of nowhere. But <laughs> yet, anyway, I, I I think you and I are in like total agreement. But you mm-hmm. are the one who has really come up with a system like you've uh, you've got some really good suggestions mm. for people who are thinking about moving in the direction of a of a portfolio life so mm-hmm. we've got the 
tenants, and I, mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, lots of options, diversify, keep rebalancing. But mm-hmm. how do you do the rebalancing? So mm-hmm. in your book, not <laughs> only do you have three tenants, you have you you really are a good teacher. I can tell that you're breaking everything into bits. But <laughs> you have four pillars of a mm-hmm. portfolio life, and I think that's a really uh, they're they're good um, beginning points for. Uh, maybe examining your life. You want to tell us about those four pillars? Absolutely. So it really starts with identity. It's who are you? And I mean that in the broadest sense. Who are you and what do you bring to the table? I think so many of us, particularly in the United States, really see ourselves as our job and in particular Mm -hmm. see ourselves as our current job. Just what is on my LinkedIn today? That's how we introduce ourselves at parties. And and many times that becomes one of the biggest limiting factors in when we are considering what comes next. We say, well, I am this, so only that is available to me. So it starts with really understanding and excavating your identity. And I I give this phrase, you know, I've called myself for a very long time a human Venn diagram um, because it helps really pull out these different worlds that I sit in, business, technology, the arts. I'm a writer. I'm a storyteller. I'm a planner. uh, I'm a cheerleader, right? There are all these things that I bring to the table. And it's not just how I see the world. It's also who I have access to, the the teams and the networks that I can tap into. And all of those become really relevant into what problems I want to solve, what what industries I might go after, and how I show up in the world. So I challenge everyone to really start with their identity and pull out, you know, who are you? What what can you do? What are you curious about? And if you're not really sure, maybe it's been a while since you've had to think about these things, I give three questions that you can go out and ask the people who know you and love you what they see. Because sometimes they're seeing you in more uh, depth and better uh, resolution than you might be seeing yourself. So what are the questions? They start with, when have you seen me happiest? Which I love because it sometimes reflects back where you are shining, where yes. you thrive, rather than where you just survive. Question and sometimes two. you're so busy, then mm-hmm. you don't even know that you're that happy. So that's great. So I interrupted exactly. you. What's number no, two? No, no worries. Number two is, what do you come to me for? Like, what is that moment where you have a spark and you're like, you know what? I should see what Christina thinks about this. And then number three is, where do I stand out against my peers? Maybe you have a, like something that comes so easily to you, you don't even recognize that it's a superpower, but everyone around you is like, whoa, how does she do that? <laughs> That's yeah. amazing, right? So go and get some some external feedback and uh, and take some data in. You know, any one answer, probably not that helpful, but you talk to enough people, you'll start seeing patterns in what they have to say. And that's what's really helpful as you shape your identity beyond your job. So that's pillar okay, so one. That, yeah, that's just the first pillar we've got. It two- is. Oh. I know. I know. <laughs> pillar two is about optionality. 
And this, it really flows out of pillar one. Once you recognize that you are more than one thing, then you start seeing that you can do more than one thing. And this, I mean, a lot of this starts from the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, right? That becomes a limiting factor. So start broadening up what you think is available to you. And this is so important because I think when we're young, we recognize, you know, we could be anything. You could be an astronaut, you could be an accountant, whatever. (laughs) And then we start making choices. We pick a major, we start a career, and we feel like at a certain point, we feel like we've probably closed most of those doors and now we're on a path. And I want to challenge that notion and say, truly, you have as many options available in front of you as you have behind you. They might look very different than the options you had when you were younger, but you do still have that many in front of you if you can see them. So so it's kind of a kind of a mindset shift at this point. It, it, it is. Don't tell yourself, well, I've made my bed and I have to lie in it. Like, no, the, you always can change. I say, if you're not dead yet, you still have options. Um, so it's a mindset shift there. Pillar three, diversification, is really around how you piece together the the activities you do in a way that builds uh, that that you know builds this life that de-risks, that future proofs, and helps you maybe take some chances without putting all of your eggs in one very risky basket. And this is where we introduce this idea that like not everything you do has to meet all of your needs. Maybe you have a really great, good enough day job, and maybe that day job meets some of your needs. Maybe it meets your income needs, your health insurance, the stability that you want for your family, but maybe it doesn't meet all of your needs. You still want to make something. You're you're lacking community or creativity or growth. Well, that's where the rest of your portfolio can come in. Can you moonlight? And have a, a, a sincere and, and deep hobby or side hustle that you have that helps meet some of those other needs. Is there a piece of this around your health or your relationships that you want to invest in that helps diversify there? And this is not just about your needs, but also your networks, because that is what is going to help you weather the disruptions that are coming your way. And then the last piece is really about uh, flexibility. And this is that rebalancing for the stage of life you're in. I want, especially younger folks that are kind of like, ah, I got to figure out who I'm going to be. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You just have to decide what you want to learn next. This is, you're going to go through so many seasons of life and your needs and your wants are really going to change from one season to the next that makes sense. You're changing as a person. So don't freak out about like the long 40-year arc. Just really be focused on what does this season of life, what do I need? What do I want? What works here? Recognizing that when those things change, you have that flexibility to rebalance everything to fit the next season. So that's another mindset change maybe that sometimes when um, things aren't going well or there was a mistake or a loss Mm -hmm. or whatever, people get hung up in the past. And Mm -hmm. part of flexibility is saying, well, I learned from that, Mm -hmm. but the future is going to bring new options. Let's get started. So it's 
kind of working on your positive approach to the future is is part of the flexibility, right? It is, but it's also recognizing like right now with my young kids, I have to put a number of things on the back burner. My portfolio is not nearly as robust as it was when I was uh, child free and single in my 20s. And, you know, my my adventure travel, my um, singing in a choir, a number of things that I love and care deeply about, they're on the back burner for now. And it helps to remember it's just for now. I haven't lost them forever. Yes. It's just for now. So I want to go back to your third pillar. When mm-hmm. you're talking about um, diversification, you mentioned networking. And I I think that networking is always a smart thing to do when you want to create a shift or you want mm-hmm. to do something new or you're feeling bored, whatever. It's just, it's just one of the um, essential keys. Mm-hmm. But you described... Um, uh, networking in a different way than a lot of people think about it. And you used a word, which frankly, I don't even think I knew, (laughs) which was orthogonal. You want Mm -hmm. to build an orthogonal network. Now that must be the mathematician in you. So so tell us what that kind of network is. As soon as I figured out what it was, I think, yes, that's what we need to do. But tell us what the word means and why that's something we want to keep in mind when we're Uh, thinking about what our network should look like. Sure. So orthogonal is a very mathematical term. It's just another way to say perpendicular or non-redundant. So what does that mean? That means that when I have one circle of my network, say all of my MBA, uh, entrepreneur, startup folks, they may not overlap with this entire other part of my network, which are my theater director and musician and creatives. And that by having this this orthogonality uh, to my network. It means these worlds don't overlap. I am the node, the connective tissue between these two networks. That actually adds a ton of value in two ways. Number one, I can connect between these two worlds where I see there might be productive collaborations or interesting problems that they can solve. I can bring them together. And just by being the connective tissue, I'm adding value to both sides of my network. But it also means that let's say we go through, I don't know, a bunch of layoffs in the tech world. And suddenly that that entire piece of my network might be really feeling some pain or having fewer opportunities. I'm not all in on just technology and startups, I have this whole other world that if I need to head in that direction for a while, I can give them the bat signal and say, hey guys, this piece of my my work has dried up or my opportunities there aren't really looking that attractive. Are there things in this world that I might be able to go after and pursue and problems that I could solve? So it does give you this... Uh, this additional layer of diversification because you have folks in these different worlds that arguably are not going to be feeling the same shocks to the system at the same time, right? It's this idea in finance, when you're building a really diversified portfolio, you think about the beta, which is the correlation between your investments, and you're hoping to have very little beta or negative correlation between your investments. It's the same idea with your networks. I think you're absolutely right again. And the 
that diversity means that you can also learn from one circle mm-hmm. and maybe make a connection with something yes. that's going on another one and you're ahead of the game. You're one of the people who's always kind of um, looking down the road. But there is a challenge mm-hmm. when you go about um, trying to have more circles and enter <laughs> more worlds. And that is if if you're you have to be able to say quickly who you are if you're meeting somebody (laughs) at a dinner party. And that means what some people call an elevator speech, although I suppose that's out of date since (laughs) often it's more like a LinkedIn or something like that. But anyway, one of the things you, you do touch upon um, in the, in the book is, is how you describe yourself. Do you have any Mm -hmm. hints for people about how they can come up with a sharper, uh, more um, usable uh, description mm-hmm. of themselves. Yeah, I mean, this phrase of like, tell me about yourself is probably the scariest thing you can say to anyone, <laughs> period. But yes. certainly yeah. anyone with like a portfolio life. Because if you start rattling off everything you do, it's likely that you're going to sound a little flaky, maybe like a dilettante who can't focus. Mm-hmm. So instead, it's really about, instead of saying what you do, this ties back to that first pillar with identity, Think one level up. What is that that connects across the things you do? And what, here's an example. Instead of saying, for you know, I am an author and a public speaker and a journalist, you might say, I'm a storyteller. And I tell stories through a number of different media or through different, you know, platforms. So see if you can find that connective tissue one level up. I am a, an innovator. I am a uh, convener, a connector of people. And um, and then sort of craft basically what problems do you solve that gives you permission to be in a whole bunch of different arenas while it still makes sense why you do what you do across these these different spaces. So there's a couple of exercises and there's a whole chapter truly on how you tell your story in the book that can really help you start with like the long version. I call it like the full page version because sometimes mm-hmm. you have to get all the details out to see those connections. And then you start to shrink it to the one paragraph version. That might be the email that someone sends to introduce you. And then from there, you shrink it just down to the sentence that's like, here's how I can make that first impression that doesn't tell them everything I do, but earns that response, which is, oh, tell me more. And that allows you to have a, a conversation where you can tailor what you're sharing based on the context, based on the conversation, uh, and and really allow you to expand in a way that feels intentional and strategic rather than flaky. Well, if you meet somebody new, mm-hmm. uh, it must be tempting simply to say, you know, I lecture at Harvard Business School, because that's something yeah. everybody will recognize. And yet, mm-hmm. that feels like it's only a little bit of who you are, what you exactly. are. So if you and I were to meet, mm-hmm. um, and well, we did meet just by uh, <laughs> uh, long distance today, mm-hmm. but I already knew about you. But if we were to meet for the first time, mm-hmm. what would you say about yourself? 
I say I'm a human Venn diagram and I've built a career at the intersection of business technology and the arts. And you're like, huh, I don't exactly know what any of that means, but it sounds interdisciplinary and I know at least the worlds that you play in. So you might say, oh, tell me more. I'm also in the business world. And that tells me a little bit about the direction we might take this conversation, right? So, So really it's... That, for me, it gives off from day one this understanding that I'm interdisciplinary, that I have sort of multiple things going on, and and these are the worlds that I play in, and so let's go from there. I think that, yeah, that's a good way to begin. So in the book, mm-hmm. you have suggestions, some of them pretty specific, about how to... Um, project an idea of your portfolio life. So mm-hmm. so we have a listener out there, but they haven't read your uh, book yet. I, and I will tell them that, you know, I, as you can hear, I love the book. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some of the suggestions are a little bit um, intimidating. You're very businesslike <laughs> and you and you show how to project things. So, so mm-hmm. some of the suggestions might not be for everybody. But one of the suggestions... Um, that I that I really liked is is that whatever you're planning when you're thinking about your future portfolio life, mm-hmm. you've got to be creating spaces for joy. It's mm-hmm. not all about a to do list. Mm-hmm. So, how do you do that? How how might our listeners do that? And how do you, Christina, just keep room for joy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I. <laughs> I fully recognize that some of my uh, analogies or my frameworks do feel a little business-like. I will admit that's the framework that I bring to the table. Uh-huh. Um, but so I, I bring this up, right? I, I mention um, some research based on uh, manufacturing lines, stay with me here, um, that suggest you really should be limiting your total portfolio to 85% of your capacity. So you're you're building in intentional downtime from the beginning. And the reason is, is that intentional planned downtime is cheaper than unplanned downtime. It's the recognition that we're all human. We're going to need rest. We're going to yes. make mistakes and need space for some do-overs. And We want space for serendipity, right? And if you're constantly scheduled to 100% of your capacity, there's no space for serendipity or for joy. And so I, uh, the struggle truly, and I am, I fully say, like, do as I say, not as I do, because I'm still working on this myself. The struggle here is to really see all of your commitments. And I mean this, all of them, not just your job, your side hustles, your paid work, Everything that you have in your life, your family, your workouts, your religious commitments, whatever it is that that makes up part of who you are, you map them all out on your calendar or over the course of a day or a month and you say, you know, am I overcommitted? Do I have space in my day, my week, my month? Maybe on an individual day, it's, it's kind of crunch time, but over the course of the week, you do have some of that recovery time, some of that space. And for me, when I map it all out, I see when I get into these moments of overcommitment. I can see it and I have enough experience now to say, Christina, you're taking on too much. There's no downtime. 
time to put something on the back burner, to say no, to simplify or to, you know, really say, I want to do this. Can we push it off until next quarter, next year? Um, So training myself to not have this suck it up buttercup attitude, right? Of like, you know, you you can do this. You've done it before. I have this, you know, superhero uh, complex for sure. You've done it before. Um, And you're like, yes. And every single time you end up exhausted or, uh, you know, memorably with mono and pneumonia at the same time. Um, And so finding the discipline to proactively say, you know, that's enough. Your portfolio is full. Let's maybe rebalance or re- reschedule some of these things to make sure that we don't burn out. I think that is great advice to end with. We're just about out of time. In fact, I, we are out of time, but I, I do think leaving space on your calendar is a great way to keep yourself in check and to open uh, possibility. So, Christina, thank you so much for being with us today. I hope your book is doing great and that you are having enough time to really enjoy it. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Today, we've been talking with academic and entrepreneur Christina Wallace about how to build a portfolio life. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. And our sponsor is the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. Today's tip is that everything you do in your life can impact your career, from the way you eat to your social life. And at the same time, you can create a fulfilling career and a happy life that all work together. Thanks for listening to Jazzed About Work, and if you like the show, please tell your friends. Thank you.